Section three of the world's famous orations, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The world's famous orations, volume four. On the refusal to negotiate with France. By William Pitt. Footnote. Spoken in the House of Commons, February third, eighteen hundred abridged, replied to by Fox on the same day. See on subsequent pages the speech of Fox. Napoleon had landed in France from Egypt on October ninth of the previous year. Having executed the coup d'etat of the 18th Brumaire, November the ninth, he had been proclaimed First Consul. End of footnote. 1800. I will enlarge no further on the origin of the war. I have read and detailed to you a system which was in itself a declaration of war against all nations, which was so intended, and which has been so applied, which has been exemplified in the extreme peril and hazard of almost all who for a moment have trusted to treaty, and which has not at this hour overwhelmed Europe in one indiscriminate mass of ruin, only because we have not indulged to a fatal extremity that disposition which we have, however, indulged too far because we have not consented to trust to profession and compromise, rather than to our own valor and exertion for security against a system from which we never shall be delivered till either the principle is extinguished or its strength is exhausted. I might, sir, if I found it necessary, enter into much detail upon this part of the subject. You cannot look at the map of Europe and lay your hand upon that country against which France has not either declared an open and aggressive war, or violated some positive treaty, or broken some recognized principle of the law of nations. For the express purpose of producing the war they excited a popular tumult in Paris. They insisted upon and obtained the dismissal of Monsieur de la Sarre. A new minister was appointed in his room. The tone of the negotiation was immediately changed, and an ultimatum was sent to the emperor, similar to that which was afterwards sent to this country affording him no satisfaction on his just grounds of complaint, and requiring him, under those circumstances, to disarm. The first events of the contest proved how much more France was prepared for war than Austria, and afford a strong confirmation of the proposition which I maintained that no offensive intention was entertained on the part of the latter power. War was then declared against Austria, footnote, on April twentieth, 1792, in footnote, a war which I state to be a war of aggression on the part of France. The King of Prussia had declared that he should consider war against the Emperor or Empire as war against himself. He had declared that as a co-estate of the Empire he was determined to defend their rights, that as an ally to the Emperor he would support him to the utmost against any attack, and that for the sake of his own dominions he felt himself called upon to resist the progress of French principles and to maintain the balance of power in Europe. With this notice before them, France declared war upon the Emperor, and the war with Prussia was the necessary consequence of this aggression, both against the Emperor and the Empire. It was not till a considerably later period that almost all the other nations of Europe found themselves equally involved in actual hostility. But it is not a little material to the whole of my argument, compared with the statement of the learned gentleman and with that contained in the French note, to examine at what period this hostility extended itself. It extended itself in the course of 1796 to the states of Italy, which had hitherto been exempted from it. 
1797 it had ended in the destruction of most of them. It had ended in the virtual deposition of the King of Sardinia. It had ended in the conversion of Genoa and Tuscany into democratic republics. It had ended in the revolution of Venice, in the violation of treaties with the new Venetian Republic, and finally in transferring that very republic, the creature and vassal of France, to the dominion of Austria. I observe from the gestures of some honorable gentlemen that they think we are precluded from the use of any argument founded on this last transaction. I already hear them saying that it was as criminal in Austria to receive as it was in France to give. I am far from defending or palliating the conduct of Austria upon this occasion. But because Austria, unable at last to contend with the arms of France, was forced to accept an unjust and insufficient indemnification for the conquests France had made from it, are we to be debarred from stating what, on the part of France, was not merely an unjust acquisition, but an act of the grossest and most aggravated perfidy and cruelty, and one of the most striking specimens of that system, which has been uniformly and indiscriminately applied to all the countries which France has had within its grasp? Let us look at the conduct of France. She has spurned the offers of Great Britain. She had reduced her continental enemies to the necessity of accepting a precarious peace. She had, in spite of those pledges repeatedly made and uniformly violated, surrounded herself by new conquests on every part of her frontier but one. That one was Switzerland. The first effect of being relieved from the war with Austria of being secured against all fears of continental invasion on the ancient territory of France, was their unprovoked attack against this unoffending and devoted country. The country they attacked was one which had long been the faithful ally of France, which instead of giving cause of jealousy to any other power had been for ages proverbial for the simplicity and innocence of its manners, and which had acquired and preserved the esteem of all the nations of Europe which had almost by the common consent of mankind been exempted from the sound of war, and marked out as a land of Goshen, safe and untouched, in the midst of surrounding calamities. Look, then, at the fate of Switzerland, at the circumstances which led to its destruction. Add this instance to the catalogue of aggression against all Europe, and then tell me whether the system I have described has not been prosecuted with an unrelenting spirit, which cannot be subdued in adversity, which cannot be appeased in prosperity, which neither solemn professions, nor the general law of nations, nor the obligation of treaties, whether previous to the revolution or subsequent to it, could restrain from the subversion of every state into which, either by force or fraud, their arms could penetrate. Then tell me whether the disasters of Europe are to be charged upon the provocation of this country and its allies, or on the inherent principle of the French Revolution, of which the natural result produced so much misery and carnage in France, and carried desolation and terror over so large a portion of the world. After this it remains only shortly to remind gentlemen of the aggression against Egypt, not omitting, however, to notice the capture of Malta in the way to Egypt. Inconsiderable as that island may be thought, compared with the scenes we have witnessed, let it be remembered that it is an island of which the government had long been recognized by every state of Europe, against which France pretended no cause of war, and whose independence was as dear to itself and as sacred as that of any country in Europe. It was, in fact, not unimportant from its local situation to the other powers of Europe. But in proportion as any man may diminish its importance, the instance will only serve the more to illustrate and confirm the proposition which I have maintained.' 
The all-searching eye of the French Revolution looks to every part of Europe and every quarter of the world in which can be found an object either of acquisition or plunder. Nothing is too great for the temerity of its ambition, nothing too small or insignificant for the grasp of its rapacity. From hence Bonaparte and his army proceeded to Egypt. The attack was made, pretenses were held out to the natives of that country in the name of the French king whom they had murdered. They pretended to have the approbation of the Grand Seigneur whose territory they were violating. Their project was carried on under the profession of a zeal for Mohammedanism. It was carried on by proclaiming that France had been reconciled to the Mussulman faith, had abjured that of Christianity, or as he in his impious language termed it, of the sect of the Messiah. The only plea which they have since held out to color this atrocious invasion of a neutral and friendly territory is that it was the road to attack the English power in India. It is most unquestionably true that this was one and a principal cause of this unparalleled outrage, but another and an equally substantial cause, as appears by their own statements, was the division and partition of the territories over what they thought a falling power. It is impossible to dismiss this subject without observing that this attack against Egypt was accompanied by an attack upon British possessions in India made on true revolutionary principles. In Europe the propagation of the principles of France had uniformly prepared the way for the progress of its arms. What then was the nature of this system? Was it anything but what I have stated it to be? an insatiable love of aggrandizement, an implacable spirit of destruction against all the civil and religious institutions of every country. This is the first moving and acting spirit of the French Revolution. This is the spirit which animated it at its birth, and this is the spirit which will not desert it till the moment of its dissolution, which grew with its growth, which strengthened with its strength, but which has not abated under its misfortunes nor declined in its decay. It has been invariably the same in every period, operating more or less according as accident or circumstances might assist it, but it has been inherent in the revolution in all stages. It has equally belonged to Brizot, to Robespierre, to Tallinn, to Rubel, to Barris, and to every one of the leaders of the directory, but to none more than to Bonaparte, in whom now all their powers are united. Its first fundamental principle was to bribe the poor against the rich by proposing to transfer into new hands on the delusive notion of equality, and in the breach of every principle of justice, the whole property of the country. The practical application of this principle was to devote the whole of that property to indiscriminate plunder, and to make it the foundation of a revolutionary system of finance, productive in proportion to the misery and desolation which it created. It has been accompanied by an unwearied spirit of proselytism, diffusing itself over all the nations of the earth, a spirit which can apply itself to all circumstances and all situations, which can furnish a list of grievances and hold out a promise of redress equally to all nations, which inspired the teachers of French liberty with the hope of alike recommending themselves to those who live under the feudal code of the German Empire, to the various states of Italy under all their different institutions, to the old Republicans of Holland and to the new Republicans of America, to the Catholic of Ireland whom it was to deliver from Protestant usurpation, the Protestant of Switzerland whom it was to deliver from Popish superstition, and to the Mussulman of Egypt whom it was to deliver from Christian persecution, 
to the remote Indian, blindly bigoted to his ancient institutions and to the natives of Great Britain, enjoying the perfection of practical freedom and justly attached to their constitution, from the joint result of habit, of reason, and of experience. The last and distinguishing feature is a perfidy which nothing can bind, which no tie of treaty, no sense of the principles generally received among nations, no obligation human or divine can restrain. Thus qualified, thus armed for destruction, the genius of the French Revolution marched forth, the terror and dismay of the world. Every nation has in its turn been the witness, many have been the victims of its principles, and it is left for us to decide whether we will compromise with such a danger while we have yet resources to supply the sinews of war, while the heart and spirit of the country is yet unbroken and while we have the means of calling forth and supporting a powerful cooperation in Europe. In examining this part of the subject, let it be remembered that there is one other characteristic of the French Revolution, as striking as its dreadful and destructive principles. I mean the instability of its government, which has been of itself sufficient to destroy all reliance, if any such reliance could at any time have been placed, on the good faith of any of its rulers. Such has been the incredible rapidity with which the revolutions in France have succeeded each other, that I believe the names of those who have successively exercised absolute power under the pretense of liberty are to be numbered by the years of the revolution, and by each of the new constitutions which under the same pretense has in its turn been imposed by force on France, all of which alike were founded upon principles which profess to be among all the nations of the earth. Each of these will be found upon an average to have had about two years as the period of its duration. Having taken a view of what it was, let us now examine what it is. In the first place we see, as has been truly stated, a change in the description and form of the sovereign authority. A supreme power is placed at the head of this nominal republic, with a more open avowal of military despotism than in any former period with a more open and undisguised abandonment of the names and pretenses under which that despotism long attempted to conceal itself. The different institutions, republican in their form and appearance, which were before the instruments of that despotism, are now annihilated. They have given way to the absolute power of one man, concentrating in himself all the authority of the state, and differing from other monarchs only in this, that, as my honorable friend Mr. Canning truly stated it, he wields a sword instead of a scepter. Footnote. Since becoming first consul, Napoleon had rapidly advanced in power and influence with the French people. He soon went to Italy again, and on June 14th of this year won the Battle of Marengo. End of footnote. What, then, is the confidence we are to derive, either from the frame of the government or from the character and past conduct of the person who is now the absolute ruler of France? Had we seen a man of whom we had no previous knowledge suddenly invested with the sovereign authority of the country, invested with the power of taxation, with the power of the sword, the power of war and peace, the unlimited power of commanding the resources of disposing of the lives and fortunes of every man in France, if we had seen at the same moment all the inferior machinery of the revolution, which under the variety of successive shocks had kept the system in motion, still remaining entire, all that, by requisition and plunder, had given activity to the revolutionary system of finance, and had furnished the means of creating an army, by converting every man who was of age to bear arms into a soldier, not for the defense of his own country, 
but for the sake of carrying the war into the country of the enemy. If we had seen all the subordinate instruments of Jacobin power subsisting in their full force and retaining, to use the French phrase, all their original organization, and had then observed this single change in the conduct of their affairs, that there was now one man with no rival to thwart his measures, no colleague to divide his powers, no counsel to control his operations, no liberty of speaking or writing, no expression of public opinion to check or influence his conduct, under such circumstances should we be wrong to pause or wait for the evidence of facts and experience, before we consented to trust our safety to the forbearance of a single man in such a situation, and to relinquish those means of defense which have hitherto carried us safe through all the storms of the revolution. If we were to ask what are the principles and character of this stranger to whom fortune has suddenly committed the concerns of a great and powerful nation, but is this the actual state of the present question? Are we talking of a stranger of whom we have heard nothing? No, sir, we have heard of him. We, and Europe, and the world have heard both of him and of the satellites by whom he is surrounded, and it is impossible to discuss fairly the propriety of any answer which could be returned to his overtures of negotiation without taking into consideration the inferences to be drawn from his personal character and conduct. If we carry our views out of France and look at the dreadful catalogue of all the breaches of treaty, and which are precisely commensurate with the number of treaties which the Republic has made, for I have sought in vain for any one which it has made and which it has not broken. If we trace the history of them all from the beginning of the revolution to the present time, or if we select those which have been accompanied by the most atrocious cruelty and marked the most strongly with the characteristic features of the revolution, the name of Bonaparte will be found allied to more of them than that of any other that can be handed down in the history of the crimes and miseries of the last ten years. It is unnecessary to say more with respect to the credit due to his professions or the reliance to be placed on his general character. But it will perhaps be argued that whatever may be his character or whatever has been his past conduct, he has now an interest in making and observing peace. That he has an interest in making peace is at best but a doubtful proposition, and that he has an interest in preserving it is still more uncertain. That it is his interest to negotiate I do not indeed deny. It is his interest, above all, to engage this country in separate negotiation in order to loosen and dissolve the whole system of the Confederacy on the continent, to palsy at once the arms of Russia, or of Austria, or of any other country that might look to you for support, and then either to break off his separate treaty, or if he should have concluded it, to apply the lesson which is taught in his school of policy in Egypt, and to revive at his pleasure those claims of indemnification, which may have been reserved to some happier period." this is precisely the interest which he has in negotiation. But on what grounds are we to be convinced that he has an interest in concluding and observing a solid and permanent pacification? Under all the circumstances of his personal character and his newly acquired power, what other security has he for retaining that power but the sword? His hold upon France is the sword, and he has no other. Is he connected with the soil, or with the habits, the affections, or the prejudices of the country? He is a stranger, a foreigner, and a usurper. He unites in his own person everything that a pure Republican must detest, everything that an enraged Jacobin has abjured, everything that a sincere and faithful Royalist must feel as an insult. If he is opposed at any time in his career, what is his appeal? He appeals to his fortune, 
in other words, to his army and his sword. Placing then his whole reliance upon military support, can he afford to let his military renown pass away, to let his laurels wither, to let the memory of his trophies sink in obscurity? Is it certain that with his army confined within France and restrained from inroads upon her neighbors, he can maintain at his devotion a force sufficiently numerous to support his power? Having no object but the possession of absolute dominion, no passion but military glory, is it to be reckoned as certain that he can feel such an interest in permanent peace as would justify us in laying down our arms, reducing our expense, and relinquishing our means of security on the faith of his engagements? Do we believe that after the conclusion of peace he would not still sigh over the lost trophies of Egypt, wrested from him by the celebrated victory of Abu Kur? Footnote, better known as the Battle of the Nile, won by Nelson on August 1st and 2nd, 1798, in footnote. And the brilliant exertions of that heroic band of British seamen whose influence and example rendered the Turkish troops invincible at Acre. Footnote. Napoleon's failure to reduce Acre, as defended by Sir Sidney Smith in 1799, caused him to abandon his ambitious plans for further conquests in Asia. End footnote. Can he forget that the effect of these exploits enabled Austria and Russia in one campaign to recover from France all which she had acquired by his victories, to dissolve the charm which for a time fascinated Europe, and to show that their generals, contending in a just cause, could efface even by their success and their military glory the most dazzling triumphs of his victorious and desolating ambition? Can we believe with these impressions on his mind, that if after a year, eighteen months, or two years of peace had elapsed, he should be tempted by the appearance of fresh insurrection in Ireland, encouraged by renewed and unrestrained communication with France, and fomented by the fresh infusion of Jacobin principles? If we were at such a moment without a fleet to watch the ports of France, or to guard the coasts of Ireland, without a disposable army or an embodied militia capable of supplying a speedy and adequate reinforcement, and that he had suddenly the means of transporting thither a body of twenty or thirty thousand French troops, can we believe that at such a moment his ambition and vindictive spirit would be restrained by the recollection of engagements or the obligation of treaty? Or if in some new crisis of difficulty and danger to the Ottoman Empire, with no British navy in the Mediterranean, no confederacy formed, no force collected to support it, an opportunity should present itself for resuming the abandoned expedition to Egypt, for renewing the avowed and favorite project of conquering and colonizing that rich and fertile country, and of opening the way to wound some of the vital interests of England and to plunder the treasures of the East in order to fill the bankrupt coffers of France. Would it be the interest of Bonaparte under such circumstances, or his principles, his moderation, his love of peace, his aversion to conquest, and his regard for the independence of other nations, would it be all or any of these that would secure us against an attempt which would leave us only the option of submitting without a struggle to certain loss and disgrace, or of renewing the contest which we had prematurely terminated without allies, without preparation, with diminished means, and with increased difficulty and hazard? Hitherto I have spoken only of the reliance which we can place on the professions, the character, and the conduct of the present First Consul. But it remains to consider the stability of his power. The revolution has been marked throughout by a rapid succession of new depositaries of public authority, each supplanting its predecessors. 
What grounds have we to believe that this new usurpation, more odious and more undisguised than all that preceded it, will be more durable? Is it that we rely on the particular provisions contained in the code of the pretended constitution which was proclaimed as accepted by the French people as soon as the garrison of Paris declared their determination to exterminate all its enemies, and before any of its articles could be known to half the country whose consent was required for its establishment? I will not pretend to inquire deeply into the nature and effects of a constitution which can hardly be regarded but as a farce and a mockery. If, however, it could be supposed that its provisions were to have any effect, it seems equally adapted to two purposes, that of giving to its founder for a time an absolute and uncontrolled authority, and that of laying the certain foundation of disunion and discord which, if they once prevail, must render the exercise of all the authority under the Constitution impossible, and leave no appeal but to the sword. Is, then, military despotism that which we are accustomed to consider as a stable form of government? In all ages of the world it has been attained with the least stability to the persons who exercised it, and with the most rapid succession of changes and revolutions. In the outset of the French Revolution its advocates boasted that it furnished a security forever, not to France only, but to all countries in the world against military despotism, that the force of standing armies was vain and delusive, that no artificial power could resist public opinion and that it was upon the foundation of public opinion alone that any government could stand. I believe that in this instance, as in every other, the progress of the French Revolution has belied its professions. But so far from its being a proof of the prevalence of public opinion against military force, it is, instead of the proof, the strongest exception from that doctrine which appears in the history of the world. If, then, I am asked how long are we to persevere in the war, I can only say that no period can be accurately assigned. Considering the importance of obtaining complete security for the objects for which we contend, we ought not to be discouraged too soon. But on the contrary, considering the importance of not impairing and exhausting the radical strength of the country, there are limits beyond which we ought not to persist, and which we can determine only by estimating and comparing fairly from time to time the degree of security to be obtained by treaty and the risk and disadvantage of continuing the contest. But, sir, there are some gentlemen in the House who seem to consider it already certain that the ultimate success to which I am looking is unattainable. They suppose us contending only for the restoration of the French monarchy, which they believe to be impracticable, and deny to be desirable for this country. We have been asked in the course of this debate, do you think you can impose monarchy upon France against the will of the nation? I never thought it. I never hoped it. I never wished it. I have thought, I have hoped, I have wished, that the time might come when the effect of the arms of the Allies might so far overpower the military force which keeps France in bondage, as to give vent and scope to the thoughts and actions of its inhabitants. On the question, sir, how far the restoration of the French monarchy, if practicable, is desirable, I shall not think it necessary to say much. Can it be supposed to be indifferent to us or to the world whether the throne of France is to be filled by a prince of the House of Bourbon, or by him whose principles and conduct I have endeavoured to develop? Is it nothing with a view to influence an example whether the fortune of this last adventurer in the lottery of revolutions shall appear to be permanent? Is it nothing whether a system shall be sanctioned which confirms by one of its fundamental articles that the general transfer of property from its ancient and lawful possessors 
which holds out one of the most terrible examples of national injustice, and which has furnished the great source of revolutionary finance and revolutionary strength against all the powers of Europe? In the exhausted and impoverished state of France, it seems for a time impossible that any system but that of robbery and confiscation, anything but the continued torture which can be applied only by the engines of the revolution, can extort from its ruined inhabitants more than the means of supporting in peace the yearly expenditure of its government. Suppose then the heir of the House of Bourbon reinstated on the throne. He will have sufficient occupation in endeavouring, if possible, to heal the wounds and gradually to repair the losses of ten years of civil convulsion, to reanimate the drooping commerce, to rekindle the industry, to replace the capital, and to revive the manufactures of the country. Under such circumstances there must probably be a considerable interval, before such a monarch, whatever may be his views, can possess the power which can make him formidable to Europe. But while the system of the revolution continues, the case is quite different. It is true indeed that even the gigantic and unnatural means by which that revolution has been supported are so far impaired, the influence of its principles and the terror of its arms so far weakened, and its power of action so much contracted and circumscribed, that against the embodied force of Europe, prosecuting a vigorous war, we may justly hope that the remnant and wreck of this system cannot long oppose an effectual resistance. Can we forget that in the ten years in which that power has subsisted, it has brought more misery on surrounding nations, and produced more acts of aggression, cruelty, perfidy, and enormous ambition, that can be traced in the history of France for the centuries which have elapsed since the foundation of its monarchy, including all the wars which in the course of that period have been waged by any of those sovereigns whose projects of aggrandizement and violations of treaty afford a constant theme of general reproach against the ancient government of France. And if not, can we hesitate whether we have the best prospect of permanent peace, the best security for the independence and safety of Europe, from the restoration of the lawful government, or from the continuance of revolutionary power in the hands of Bonaparte. In compromise and treaty with such a power, placing in such hands as now exercise it and retaining the same means of annoyance which it now possesses, I see little hope of permanent security. I see no possibility at this moment of such a peace as would justify that liberal intercourse which is the essence of real amity no chance of terminating the expenses or the anxieties of war, or of restoring to us any of the advantages of established tranquillity. And as a sincere lover of peace, I cannot be content with its nominal attainment. I must be desirous of pursuing that system which promises to attain in the end the permanent enjoyment of its solid and substantial blessings for this country and for Europe. As a sincere lover of peace, I will not sacrifice it by grasping at the shadow, when the reality is not substantially within my reach. End of section three. Recording by Philip Gould.